Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Our next guest is joining us on the live link from halfway across the world. Her name is Maram Susli, otherwise known as Syrian Girl, but also Partisan Girl on Twitter. And uh, she's joining us right now. Hello, Maram. Hi, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And there's a lot going on right now in the Middle East, of course, in Syria. And uh, Donald Trump as well has inserted himself uh, in the early hours of this morning. A, a gallant raid, we're told, to kill the leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. We'll talk about that as well. But the, the, the big news that I wanted to talk to you about was it was, it was a big announcement that the U.S. were withdrawing their troops from Syria. And this was huge uh, controversy politically in America. There was arguments back and forth uh, between the neocons and the White House and the Democrats and the Republicans and between the Turks, the Russians, Damascus, the U.S. And I'm wondering, looking at recent reports, Maram, did did the U.S. actually withdraw its troops and assets uh, from northern Syria? Well, no. As Trump said, they are still in the oil fields, and they, in fact, brought in reinforcements for you know to bring people into the oil fields. And apparently, the last I've heard, they're actually moving back into some of the bases that they abandoned in the north of the country. So it's almost like a you know they're trying to reverse some of Trump's decision to pull out. Do Do, do you think that was a uh, a move or a, a kind of a public relations move by the White House to kind of ameliorate the the situation, the tense situation a couple of weeks ago. And it's been kind of overtaken now by back to U.S. long-term policy and goals uh, with regards to, let's say, not letting Syria get a hold of its own natural resources, maybe. Well, that was always the goal at the end of the day, like the entire let's support the Kurds get an autonomous region was really about denying the rest of Syria's population access to its own oil resources, as well as legitimizing the occupation. Um, so that is always been the plan. Um, I think that the fact that you know Trump was saying we have to end these perpetual wars, but we're going to stay in the oil fields, it's complete you know schizophrenic contradiction. So that stuff that he said about ending the wars. It's just been thrown out the window, and that's just created an opportunity for the neocons to move back into um, re- uh, some regions of the north and perhaps try to stop or block the Russian-Syrian military advance um, and, the, and you know, be spoilers for the Russia-Turkish deal. Okay, so, so just to um, explain to people who aren't familiar... Uh, the when, when the U.S. said it was pulling out a couple weeks ago, um, it, it Mike Pence made a big announcement, big dramatic announcement there uh, over in Turkey. He said we've cut a deal with Erdogan, and uh, it's this is going to be like a ceasefire or a pause. It's going to be for like five days, and it was going to save the lives of so many Kurdish residents and fighters that would have died by a Turkish invasion or incursion. And then the media kind of backed off at that point and things they said, you know, there was complaints, but the Americans believed, oh, there's, you know, the bloodshed's going to be uh, solved. And then all of a sudden that five day period expired. Then what happened after that? 
where where is the U.S. at, at that point? Well, uh, as far as Trump is concerned, you know, as soon as those five days were up, this Turkish and Russian and Syrian, well, Syria kind of stayed out of it. But they made a deal whereby the Syrian military would um, take those territories that was meant to be the buffer zone instead of Turkey. And of course, the Syrian military had already made a deal with the SDF that they would take the Kurdish um, SDF, that they would take those territories. So it was kind of out of the United States' hands at that point. And the only thing that they now had influence over was their, you know, their deal with Erdogan in, in that they remain near the oil fields. Um, and the only thing that was left to do for Trump was to say, oh, well, at least the Turks, uh, the Russians and the Syrians will make sure that the Kurds will stay safe. Um, and that's been their position because there's nothing else they can do. Um, they can't. They certainly can't defend the the Kurds against Turkey because Turkey is their NATO ally. They can't fire at it, unlike you know the Syrian military. Mm-hmm. So, 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 where a lot of people are confused is where where Turkey stands in all this because Turkey's uh, uh, saying that they want to establish this safe zone. And by the way, it's very similar to the the, the safe zone proposals of Hillary Clinton and. John Kerry and so many others uh, in the in the last few years of, of the last administration, and and so, but he's using the Free Syrian Army, which is a a, a proxy force, a opposition force that the U.S. funded and equipped and armed. He's using them as as Erdogan's shock troops uh, that he's sending into Syria. Turkish regulars are a little bit further back or on the artillery lines, but not on the front lines. They're actually using. Free Syrian Army, or if I, you could say Al Qaeda affiliates, in a way, um, and they're doing the fighting on the ground and fighting these the Kurds, uh, so to speak. And so, yeah, indeed, go ahead. it's the U.S. that armed um, the FSA, which is affiliated to Al Qaeda, which is now attacking the Kurds. They armed the people attacking the Kurds. They're also the reason why Turkey is attacking the Kurds at all, because they armed the YPG, the PKK, which the Turks and the Americans see as terrorist organizations. That's what they have them listed as. So in empowering these separatist movements, they've kind of been the reason why the Turks have, you know, um, targeted them inside Syria. If they hadn't had done that, then if they hadn't had started the war, you know, none of this would have happened. So it's ironic that the neocons are trying to say that the U.S. has to save the Kurds when it's entirely their policies that have created a situation by which, you know, they're being attacked. And uh, do you think Turkey has any other any other um, agenda items besides uh, like pushing back the PKK or the YPG terrorists, as as, as they're uh, referred to and as they're considered by by the Turkish government, does Turkey have any other aspirations in Syria uh, in terms of you know changing the demographics in that region or changing the border? Even what what do you think about that? It's a, it's a very important question. I think it's very clear to me that the the most important thing that they have is the 
the fear of the separatist movement of the PKK rising up in Turkey. And if they were to have an autonomous region in Syria, they would threaten Turkey for that reason. Of course, I also think that secondary to that, that's why I see that as the most important thing is they're willing to lose an alliance with the US and leave Turkey over that point. But um, the secondary objective, of course, is to gain a foothold of influence inside Syria because they're they're also funding the the FSA and Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups in Idlib. And this is about trying to get some kind of political sway in Syria's future. Lastly, you know, they continuously claim this is not about stealing Syrian land. Um, Well, you know, there is a piece of Syria that Turkey took uh, called Iskanderon, which they renamed Hatay. And even though Syrians still live there, they annexed that piece of land. So it's not something that hasn't happened before. And the threat of that exists. But now we're in a climate where you know the United Nations does protect, to some weak degree, the sovereignty of nations. And so that's a lot more far-fetched. It's more likely they will use the territory that they control as a bargaining chip in future negotiations. The, what you say about demographics, they want to change the demographics of the region. The thing is that um, the demographics of the region was already changed by the Kurdish militias who have been on record, even even amongst the US-backed humanitarian groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, to have ethnically cleansed Arabs and Assyrian Christians. I mean, they've been on record as having burnt uh, Arab villages. They would uh, threaten, um, you know, Arabs to leave their homes l- lest they call in U.S. airstrikes and claim it's Al Qaeda. They created a law where they would, uh, if somebody leaves their home, then they can confiscate that home, and you know, Kurds can therefore live in it. Instead, so there was already these demographic changes happening in the east, and a lot of the refugees in Turkey are actually already from the northeast of Syria. So I do kind of reject that claim that oh they want to Arabize what is Kurdish territory because they were already um, Kurds were never really a majority in the northeast of Syria. Arabs and Assyrians were also very significant uh, minorities in that area. So it wasn't just for Kurds alone. And Syria is for all Syrians, whatever their ethnicity. If you're a Syrian, it shouldn't matter which part of the country you live in. Um, and but of course, for Turkey, the reason why they're doing it is because they want to they want to reverse uh, the demographic gains that the Kurdish militias have made. And and you hear this a lot if you watch CNN or you, you Washington Post or any of the Western media outlets, BBC. And uh, whenever they're in the refugee camps in Turkey, especially in the last few weeks, because this has been a bigger issue now, you know, they're wanting to resettle, the, the plan to resettle them, Turkey's saying, we want to put them in a safe zone. And uh, they, they characterize all Syrians pretty much in, in Turkish refugee camps as fleeing the regime. So the, these are Syrians who have fled the regime, and uh, they need to go to a, quote, safe zone in order to be safe. So this, that's kind of how they, the, the, the Western media, as far as I know, has constructed the narrative on that. And so, As from far what as you, I could see, yeah, the Western ahead. media was... Oh, sorry. Um, but 
I didn't see that. I didn't see that. In fact, as far as I could tell, the Western media constructed the movement of refugees back into Syria as a genocide against Kurds. That's how I saw it constructed. Like refugees going back to their country is a genocide now. Um, but it's you know it's which is ridiculous. But I think that there is a danger here in exactly what you're saying. The idea that these the safe zone for refugees. Uh, where are they going to live? Um, how long is the safe zone going to be for? Does this mean that the, the Turks have this long vision of a perpetual occupation where they're going to build houses for these people and keep them safe? I mean, is this another, uh, is this their version of the Kurds in an autonomous region, the same way the U.S. is using the Kurds? Um, so, There is the danger of that, but I think that the danger coming from Turkey is much easier to face than the danger coming from a country as powerful as the United States. Yes, yes, and uh, here's here's the here's Erdogan actually gave a speech at uh, Fenerbahce, it's a Turkish football club. He he's aspiring professional footballer, by the way. He actually wanted to do that rather than be in politics, but If unfortunately. Only- Unfortunately, he wasn't that great of a striker. But uh, yesterday, he's what he said. If they don't support our projects for the return of refugees to Syria, uh, then we will have no option, no other option left but to open our borders. We will open the doors and they will depart to Europe. This is not blackmail, says President Erdogan. So he's saying this is not blackmail, but actually it kind of does sound like blackmail. It's not the first time he's done that with the European Union. The first time, I think he managed to also secure uh, quite a lot of funds from the EU to manage the refugee problem. So do, do you think there's a financial incentive at play as well with Turkey? I know they're playing a few different angles here on this. but uh, I think the financial element would be the least of their worries at the moment. I think that they didn't, which I find it strange. I always thought that by going along with NATO in destabilizing Syria, it's very obvious this is going to go back and bite them. Like, they're going to shooting themselves in the foot. But they probably didn't sign up for having millions of refugees on their border for 10 years. They didn't sign up for, uh, you know, the U.S. backing the PKK and possibly creating an autonomous region in Syria. They, those weren't on the list of things that they were okay with. So in, in doing that, I guess this is Erdogan's revenge against Europe for backing um, the U.S.'s Kurdistan push and using the, the refugees as a threat. Like, if you don't want them back in Syria, well, you can take them because I'm not going to keep them. That's what he's trying to do. And, and the, just lastly, on the refugees, if if they're refugees from Syria, they must be coming from somewhere in Syria. So, so could they not go back to the, their hometowns or aside from Idlib, uh, which is unstable, uh, the, um, unless all of, are all of these refugees from Idlib or they must be from other parts of Syria, could could they possibly return? Or are there some many of them from East Aleppo, for instance? Uh, where there's not a lot of homes, but people are still returning there as well and rebuilding. So what what do you th- what have you heard about? I think I think a lot of them are from Raqqa. So if you they're from the the 
If the refugee camp is the one in Iskandaron, or as they call it, Hatay province now, then, yeah, they would be from Idlib um, or even Damascus, the people who refused to give up their arms were put on buses and sent to Idlib. So there's those group of people, but more so near that border, I imagine that that's what the Turks are talking about. The millions of people near the east side of the country on the Turkish side of the border, a lot of them are from Raqqa. Some of them are even some of them are even Kurdish. Um, so yeah, they would if they go back, to, they would probably find that their houses are destroyed if if it was Raqqa that they come from. Yeah, because that's that's also uh, an interesting question as well. Um, you know, where where can they go back to their home? cities or, or towns or villages, if not. And Ain al-Arab and Manbij also destroyed. And so so right now, the, the U.S. Uh, repositioned some of its uh, troops over into Iraq, and the Iraqi defense minister came out uh, this week and said, uh, you know, you've got four weeks, and uh, you guys have, we, you're not welcome here, basically. We don't want to see a buildup of U.S. forces again uh, in these areas. So it, it seemed like the U.S. is kind of hedging its its bets maybe, uh, keeping some of its assets positions and so it can go back into Syria if, let's say, ISIS is to reemerge uh, miraculously in, in some part of northeastern Syria. Uh, and it looks like it's already going in that direction. Iraq also has uh, protests going on uh, and there's kind of uh, uprisings as well. There's been a lot of accusations that uh, some of this has been steered uh, by foreign powers, let's say. Um, I guess that's always going to be a risk. But uh, how, how do you see the relationship between Iraq and Syria? Because it hasn't always been great historically over the last couple of decades, but it seems like it's not as bad as it now than it was in the past. Uh, how do you see this coming together between, or how important is it between this relationship between Iraq and Syria right now? Uh, yeah, there was the Ba'athist split for you know a while that caused a rift. But since even before, while Saddam was still around, a lot of that rift was mended. Um, I, I see that the protests in Iraq, while there is absolutely always legitimate grievances that these people have, the timing of it was when Syria and Iraq opened their border crossing. And they are targeting Iran and the media, you know, in Lebanon, for example, as well. Like it all started as an not sectarian, uh, anti-corruption, uh, anti-banks taking loans protest. And the media is pushing, pushing, pushing to make it about Hezbollah, to make it about Iran, which is nonsensical because they're hardly in the government Um in order to be any part of the corruption. So, but that's what the media wants because of, you know, Rupert Murdoch and the Zionist lobby. Um, and so I think that it, it has to do with what's happening in Syria a lot. And it has to do with trying to push out the, the Iranian influence and the resistance, break up the resistance axis. Yes. I, I think uh, it was interesting. I think it was, it was yourself or Tim Anderson, uh, Dr. Tim Anderson, tweeted out. It was, it was a screenshot from, I think it was a Washington Post op-ed saying, we lost Syria, let's not lose Lebanon. It's, it's talking from a Western perspective. Like, uh, we, we failed in Syria, I guess, to achieve regime change, and let's not 
fail in Lebanon. I don't know if you saw that that piece. Yes, I did, and I tweeted it. Indeed, it was you. Okay, I mean, <laughs> what, that's quite that's quite a brazen uh, headline there by the Washington Post. I mean, it, it's quite unbelievable to read that. What, what are your thoughts on that? If you read it, if you read it closely, um, what he said was. A lot of people in Washington see the protests as a way to like turn uh, see that we can turn the protests against Hezbollah. However, like we have a lot of our own puppets in Lebanon that are now are currently at risk, in, including the central bank um, and Jean Blatt, and even, and yeah, the problem is that they're corrupt. But the solution is to pour more money in. So you know that's that's interesting that he's like completely. Und- he didn't deny that Washington sees this as an opportunity to you know, cause some problems and defeat the resistance in Lebanon. But at the same time, he's worried about the puppets that m- might be like wiped out in that wave, the corrupt politicians that the Saudi Arabia and the U.S. back. Yeah. So is, is, is that all the U.S. can do in, in this situation is, is you know, decide where to throw its money? Because I don't think they can do much militarily in Lebanon, not really. Well, well, you know, they, they, the risk is in a civil war again if they try to, you know, if they, if since they're singling out now, at the beginning it was the Shiites were, of course, joining the protests, but there's been a drive to try to push them out of the protests. And if it keeps going in that direction, then it could turn into another, like, the, the same civil war scenario repeated. Um, so that's that's the danger. And, so, and then the, what would happen after that is Israeli occupation. And, and that's something that people aren't really, they're, they're not wanting to talk about, I think, with with Lebanon. And the, the, there's this demonization of, of Hezbollah that's kind of constant coming from the U.S. to from the Western side. But they don't like to talk about the history of what's happened recently in Lebanon between Israel and Lebanon or what Hezbollah did to push Israel out of South Lebanon uh, not so long ago. And I think that's... And to push Al-Qaeda out of Syria as well. Yeah, and and also they managed to push uh, together with the Lebanese army and the Syrian army and Hezbollah managed to push some ISIS uh, cells out of North Lebanon as well, I think in the mountain border range. They they successfully uh, worked together to push al-Qaeda and ISIS, or ISIS-related cells, I guess you could say, out of there. So there has been a lot of success in terms of working together. But I guess the danger is, Maram, when, when, the, when, the, when there's no war, then the political infighting or other, other things fill the vacuum. And that's, that's the difficult part. I guess when it's an emergency and everyone jumps on board to help, it's good. And then when it's done, then other corruption issues start coming up and outside powers could could come in to maybe divide divide factions i think uh that's that's a big risk and so how 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 about the us in terms of syria the, they they've really expanded their embassy in lebanon and a lot of people were saying when i was there recently uh that's where they're going to do the re- reconstruction of syria that's where the us is going to be you know masterminding the the rebuilding of syria from from this uh this base of operations in Lebanon, but I, I do you really see that happening. Is is there any chance of that? I don't think that the U.S. wants Syria to rebuild. 
I mean, not unless it's in their vision, which would be like, you know, I guess just the oil fields being rebuilt. <laughs> That's what Trump wants right now, just to, you know, upgrade the oil fields but and, and have control over them. But, you know, while Assad is in power, they absolutely don't want any kind of rebuilding. And look at Iraq. It's been how many years since 2003? How much rebuilding has happened there? I don't think it's in their interest for Syria to rebuild. That's why they're denying Syria their, you know, access to oil and revenue and resources to slow down rebuilding because they would rather Syria be weakened perpetually for the sake of Israel. But even if they wanted to get the rebuilding contracts to make money, Syria is certainly not going to give it to them. And so it's just a pipe dream. What, and how about the Gulf states? I mean, considering the role that, like, for instance, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the amount of money they they plowed into the various rebel groups and uh, paid for U.S. arms trafficking, that's admitted and on record uh, from, from the U.S. side procuring weapons and the Saudis were paying the bill or the Qataris were paying the bill. And so would Syria then, is, is it possible that the government in Damascus might say, okay, Right, it's over, and if the Gulf states want to be partners again, if you want to have good relations, we'll hit the reset button, and then Gulf money would, would come in for rebuilding projects. Is, is any of that possible, or is, is the kind of bad blood, does it go really deep? How I think that um, the Gulf states, interestingly, tried to invite Damascus back into the Arab League, um, not about a year ago, I think. And Damascus had a very cool reception to that, like they didn't agree or disagree. But then very quickly, the United States influenced the Arabs to reverse that invitation because it's precisely because they don't want them to help rebuild Syria or make Syria, you know, back into its own old, like, state. Um, and, you know, the, the, at this point... Like, the question has to be asked, how much has Syria gained from the Arab League or the Arab influence? If anything, it's been damaging to Syria. And so th there really has to be something in it for Syria to, you know, to accept these states back into the sphere of influence. At the same time, they, they can't because, you know, the U.S. has so much control over them that they can't even... Open an invitation for Syria to come back to the Arab League. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of people don't think uh, that the Arab League is is just the most impotent of of multilateral organizations that there ever was. In other words, they can't affect really any, uh, let's say, decision making, regional or, or conflict resolution, or all the kind of important things that you'd expect a group like that to do, but they're not actually able to do so maybe it would be uh prudent to uh not join the Arab, not rejoin the arab league uh because and also the u.s tends to wield a lot of influence in there through its golf partners maybe too much influence and uh, I, I remember the friends of syria tour that hillary clinton and william haig was fronting if you remember back in 2011 2012 uh they they were also using the arab league uh, as a kind of a launching pad 
uh, for making all of those sort of relationships and connections uh, back then. And so, but do, do you, do you see, how do you see the Middle East, right? Do you, do you see two Middle Easts or do you see, you know, democratic, secular, Arab nationalist countries, and then you have Gulf on Gulf monarchies on the other side? Uh, it, it, is it possible for any kind of political or regional collective union or security packs or political consensus building or is it is it too is it just going to be divided between uh arab nationalist or arab democracies and and monarchies i think it's it's not in our interest to be divided for a long time however i also think that there's always been a divide in the middle east very obvious one between the gulf states and the levant culturally linguistically ethnically uh you know environment the environment of the gulf is also very different from the environment of the levant so the dress the way that we dress the way that we eat this there's a lot of differences i mean i have said this also as having lived in the gulf like a syrian person will not be um accepted as a local of the gulf you know so it's the divide is always there, and yet I think going forward, Syrian people need to recognize that the Levant is different, that um, we have to maintain our own uh, identity and not adopt so much the identity that Al Jazeera was promoting before 2011, which was Wahhabism. Um, so we need to, to make those lines clear. At the same time, I do think that uh, a, a better Middle East would be one where people are friendly to each other and it's not divided and there is that alliance. So that's what I, I do hope to see that in the future. It might involve a change of guard in the Gulf, like a change of leadership. Yeah, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of potential power swings there in the future. We'll, we'll see. We'll see certainly Saudi Arabia uh, uh, running running the point position uh, with regards to the Gulf, there's there's a lot of problems there uh, with that situation. That um, so will it's difficult to say. But uh, but la- you know, lastly, I want to get your um, also opinion on this. So right right now, the economy. Uh, I know the U.S. is really strangling the is doing their part with the, with the EU and strangling Syria's economy uh, through sanctions. And I have no idea what these the basis of these sanctions are uh, from the Hula massacre or on what basis they, they laid these sanctions down in at, at various points from, like, say, 2012 or 2011 till, till now. The U.S. is also squatting, it appears to be squatting Syria's national, natural resources. Uh, so embargo situation, you can't buy or sell. Uh, to Syria, uh, so they're having problems and shortages and scarcity on on things that they shouldn't have any problems with normally, and uh, currency inflation problems, systemic problems, the sort of things that happen when you're under embargo, basically when you're under sanctions. And uh, so, is is there? Do you do you think there's any way? I mean, uh, to 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 break this sanctions deadlock or do you think the u.s will just and the eu will just leave sanctions on for an indefinite 
period of time, because I know this isn't often talked about, the, the economic warfare side. The military side, of course, gets a lot of coverage. But, uh, but I think it's, it's kind of important because I think the U.S. strategy might be to choke off the economy to try to create another uprising in, in five or six years. Or, that's, you know, that's the Iraq war scenario because after the Gulf War, there was, of course, the sanctions and the oil for food program and Chapter 7 resolution and, you know, this whole, oh, well, Saddam didn't really disarm so we have we'll have an excuse to go in later. Like they're just trying to apply the Iraq scenario on Syria, and occupying Syria's oil fields uh, is very brazenly. Trump and Lindsey Graham pointed out like this is to de- in order to deny Assad or Syria their own resources so that they can't have it. We'll just sit in it, and also that's in order to protect Israel. So that is the strategy that they're playing. And there is a fuel shortage in Syria at the moment. Uh, Iran tries to break it by bringing in oil tankers and their tankers get stopped in the Mediterranean Sea um, and they get bombed in by Saudi, off the coast of Saudi Arabia while taking that oil to Syria. And the embargo is making it, you know, again, more difficult. So this is about choking off Syrian people Maybe for the long term, you know, just as uh, that uh, woman, what's her name? I forget, but she said, you know, half a million kids was worth it. Like the death of half a million children under the age of five due to the sanctions on Iraq was worth it for her if it weakened Saddam Hussein. So there is the potential of that. But Syria is not without friends. It's not an isolated country. It has Russia, Iran, China. It can create a sphere of economic growth outside of Europe and the U.S. Um, It also has the principle of self-sufficiency, which has really helped um, allow Syria to survive the war. Because uh, those factories that were looted in Aleppo were producing stuff that usually the U.S. buys stuff that are made in China glasses, you know, electronics, etc. Those kind of things were made in Syria, in Syria, in Aleppo, um, which was targeted. These things were targeted as well. And the pharmaceutical industry, Syria was almost 98% self-sufficient in pharmaceuticals before the war began, and the pharmaceuticals industry was also targeted. But Syrians are very good at uh, fixing things up and rebuilding, even if it's makeshift, they'll just, they'll do it. So I see them bouncing back from that and applying the principle of self-sufficiency is going to help resist those sanctions. Of course, we'll need, like Syria will need the use of its own oil in order to be able to be independent. Um, But there are some things that Syria can't really make on its own. Uh, There are anti-cancer drugs that the pharmaceutical companies in the West have a patent on which they don't have, the Syrians don't have the formula for, so they can't reverse engineer them. And so there are kids with leukemia that are unable to get those drugs because of those sanctions. Um, at the same time, the Boeing is sanctioning Syria, so Syria can't get replacement parts for certain aircrafts, which, you know, that means that Syria can't have a, uh, a functioning, you know, airline, which is also dangerous. So there are certain things that um, 
it's going to take a while to fix. But I don't think that the the Europe might or the Western the U.S. as well might think that they can apply the Iraq scenario to Syria and the sanctions, long-term sanctions, is going to defeat the country. But it won't. It's only going to um, make them unable to influence Syria at all. Right, right. So, so they're they're basically, and this is kind of happening with Iran, isn't it? With with U.S. led sanctions on Iran, it's it's, it's actually uh, cleansing the country of any U.S. business ties, dollar dollar deals, and it's it's forcing Iran to to create other alternative economies, other alternative business arrangements, and uh, and with that leaves all U.S. influence basically. All dollar influence, business influence, and it's uh, still good to resist these, like to mount a political defense and try to remove these sanctions here in the West. But I doubt it will be successful. I mean, how many children died in Iraq and the sanctions remained? Mm. Yeah, I think. I mean, you're in the you're, you're sort of in the West, quote so to speak, um, at the moment. I mean, do is is it because people in the West don't view sanctions as kind of they don't really view them as har- harmful because they've never had to experience them uh, why, why are people so ambivalent towards this idea of sanctions i think they're just kept in the dark i mean i don't think they even know that there's sanctions if they knew that there's sanctions they don't really understand what sanctions really mean for normal people and even if they were able to realize that then they're powerless to do anything about it mm. Yeah, this this is a big this is a big problem. I think is that overcoming that uh, that recog- recognizing that the economic warfare is is devastating is equally as devastating as uh, as military warfare in some cases, and uh, the effect it has on a country. But uh, and and so I mean, it's just a siege. It's basically a giant siege, like a Stalingrad siege, but over the whole country. So what? Do you, how, how do you feel now? Stepping back, it's the wars. This war has been going on. Uh, a war on your country has been going on since since. Well, it's been going on a long time, but let's say the last this last phase since 2011, and now it's 2019. It's been eight years. It's a long time. And how how do you how do you see your country today compared to where it was? Eight years ago, do you do you see some? How do you see the something has has have things changed uh, um, in terms of uh, has it changed the national character? Uh, is it changed the destiny of the country going forward? This 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 experience, what's happened to the country? How, how do you well, see? How do you see? By it? eight years ago, do you mean the, to compare it? To the start of the conflict or before the conflict? Uh, before the conflict and the start, but yeah, you could say before. Has it has, it, has this transformed the country in any fundamental way, or its when attitude I, or how it sees itself? Or when I was there um, before the war began, I, I was already very, very politically um, aware about the Iraq war. I was an activist against the Iraq war. And what I felt was that there was this, I thought was like a naivety or, you know, when you don't know that there's a danger, right? 
next to you, you're kind of oblivious to a danger that was very obvious to me. For example, some of the old bomb shelters that were used during the war with Israel were being turned into underground bars. Um, <laughs> the uh, the Syrian school uniform used to be a military uniform, and learning sport like the children instead of having sport, they would learn how to fight. Like um, it would be military training, and there was a focus on the countries under threat. And I found that there was, a lot, there was a lot of relaxation of that. The school uniform was changed into a business uniform. And for Syrians, they probably thought, oh, this is great. Like, things are changing for the better. We're modernizing. But for someone like me, I felt really um, uncomfortable. And I thought that it was dangerous. But I think now, I think people really must know that the danger is still there. And maybe there's, there's a more of a national focus on getting rid of that danger. And when I say that, I'm I'm 100% talking about the danger from Israel. Because this entire thing, including the support for Al-Qaeda, couldn't have happened without them, you know, masterminding the whole situation due to the Zionist lobby influencing the United States, APAC. APAC has been backing this thing the whole time. Lindsey Graham is an example of that. So... They, you know, I think that people now won't forget the resistance, but luckily it didn't change the national character in the way that the U.S. wanted to change it. It didn't become a sectarian government. Um, it didn't split up the country, federalizing the Alawite coast and the Druze south and the uh, Kurdish east. That hasn't happened. And therefore, I see hope for Syria's future. So you, you think that people still have that feeling when they see the flag flying, that uniting, like different people uniting behind the flag as Syrians, that that's still as strong as it was before or stronger? Maybe even stronger, I would say. Especially, like, amongst those that still fly that flag. Unfortunately, not for those that do not fly that flag. You know, whether they fly the flag of the SDF or the PKK or the FSA and the three-star flag. Like, for those people, yeah, there is a, there is a clear division f- from the Syrian identity. But for those people that do fly that flag, which I am one, I see more of a cohesiveness and a unity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting, something to... Uh something to look forward to certainly that's uh that's that's unique uh in the middle east it's definitely unique in the middle east uh and that's maybe something to be hopeful for going forward but uh well, that's i think we're out of time for this segment mimi but uh i want to thank you so much uh for joining us this week on the sunday wire my pleasure i love reading your um newspaper and i hope you know, people do check it out because it's got excellent stuff on there. So thank you so much for having me on. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Maram Sosli, a.k.a. Syrian Girl, a.k.a. Partisan Girl. There's a link to her Twitter account right now on the show page. And also check out her work. Uh, certainly right now, it's very, very informative and timely. Uh, do follow her social media feeds, everybody. But uh, thank you so much again for joining us. We're going to take a short break. And we're going to connect our next guest. Uh, We're going to Asia after this break. And we're going to connect with Andre Vilcek, the intrepid 
investigative journalist and global affairs commentator. This is the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Kennington. This is the 300th episode of this weekly Omnibus News and Analysis radio program here on ACR. Stick around. We'll be right back after this station break. Last night your shadow fell upon my lonely 